Hello, and welcome to a Lancet podcast. My name is Pam Das, and I'm editor at The Lancet. Today marks the official end of the Ebola outbreak that was declared on May 8th in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The outbreak began in a remote region in DRC, a country where the virus was first discovered and where eight previous outbreaks have occurred. Of the 53 cases, 29 were fatal. The rapid containment of this outbreak is in stark contrast to the 2014 outbreak that became a two-year global crisis with 28,000 cases and over 11,000 deaths. I have here Mike Ryan, Assistant Director General for the Emergency Preparedness and Response at WHO, and Professor David Heyman, Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Head of the Centre of Global Health Security at Chatham House. They're both here today to discuss the containment of this outbreak and the lessons learned. Welcome to you both. Can I start with you, Mike? But David, please do chip in. Mike, you were part of the field response to this outbreak. Could you tell us how it was different from other previous outbreaks in DRC, as well as the West African outbreak response back in 2014, and some of the lessons that have been learned on the way dealing with these outbreaks and the factors for success? The, the response this time in, in Congo was uh, very, very speedy, very rapid. I think we've learned a lot of lessons from previous responses. It is tough and sometimes unfair to compare responses. They all occur in their own context. Uh, certainly previous responses in Congo have been have been excellent uh, and have always managed to contain the disease uh, inside the borders of the of the country. In this case, there was a, a real concern because of, number one, the outbreak was occurring in, a, in an area with very poor health system right on the Congo River and affecting a, a, a major urban conurbation in, in Bandaka with more than 2 million people. So the risks were very high. The potential for spread was high. And it, it did require a, a very rapid containment exercise to uh, to bring the outbreak to an end. Uh, I think we've learned the lessons of, of past epidemics. Uh, if you go slow at the beginning, if you don't react quickly uh, and initiate containment measures quickly, you can very rapidly uh, uh, start a brush fire that turns into a, a major disaster, uh, as happened in West Africa. So yes, we, we have learned lessons over the last couple of years, collectively as a, a global community and individually as countries. And in terms of the international effort, the global community, as you say, were very quick to mobilise as well in terms of funding, better coordination and leadership shown by the government of DRC was repeatedly praised. How important was this collective response to the overall efforts? And in terms of funding, I, I recall that WHO and partners appealed for 57 million million US dollars for the response and the total funds received by all partners towards the strategic response amounted to 63 million US dollars. Could you also tell us if those monies were all used? Certainly, I think people have been right to praise the government of Congo. Uh, when you work in any country, you need a local partner. And, and in effect, the, the most effective response to any epidemic is a well-resourced, technically competent government authority, well-connected with its local actors. That's what we're aiming for through the international health regulations. However, all of that capacity is not in place around the world, and we definitely require global partners in the Global Outbreak Alert and Response Network, donor partners and others, to move quickly when we have an outbreak even in a country that has some existing capacity to ensure that the disease doesn't spread beyond borders and to aid and, uh, and the containment effort within the country to, to prevent human suffering. Um, within that, I, I think it's been an, an excellent example of, of that kind of local 
national and global coordination. We're particularly pleased that the strategic response plan uh, for the response, which was an integrated plan between the government and all the international actors, was fully funded, as you said, to the tune of $63 uh, million. Uh, those funds are currently being spent uh, across a whole range of activities in Congo, from laboratory strengthening to community mobilization to clinical management, many, many other things. Um, and uh, any residual funds that are left at the moment, we're looking at how they will be used, possibly in terms of uh, paying back some of the contingency funds that were provided at the beginning, but also in, in funding and, and, and pursuing follow-up resilience activities to make sure that if there are further outbreaks in Congo in the coming months uh, and years, that there will be a better lab system, a better clinical system, a better surveillance system in place to uh, prevent the disease uh, spreading. Yeah, well, I think what Mike said about using the leftover funding for resilience activities is very important because it's always been a problem, a structural problem within the development agencies to obtain funding for preparedness or resilience building. What happens is governments rapidly give funding when necessary, as shown here, for an outbreak response. It's very difficult to get them to provide funding in advance of outbreaks for preparedness. And hopefully, now that WHO is beginning its activities in strengthening the core capacities required under the international health regulations, the development agencies and other groups that fund WHO will provide that funding for preparedness, not only just for response. I wonder if you could comment on the Ebola vaccine. In many of the reports, indeed, um, it's been said that it, it clearly obviously played a pivotal role in controlling this outbreak. Mike, out in the field, I mean, could you just give us your views on, on, the, on the importance of the vaccine and, you know, in future outbreaks, how this vaccine's importance as well? Certainly it was a, a very exciting thing to bring uh, a vaccine to the field in the case of Ebola. It, it had a, a marked impact initially in, in just the attitudes of communities, bringing hope rather than terror to the two communities and being able to go to, to communities who would otherwise be seeing us as coming to bury bodies or coming to take their loved ones away to isolation units to be bringing a vaccine really changed the mood and changed the engagement of communities with the response. So... Uh, but I do think it's too early to determine whether or not the vaccine itself uh, had a major impact on interrupting transmission. Uh, there were other significant factors like the speed of the response, the speed of isolation of cases that probably ha had the major impact. But we are, and we are and we'll be looking at the data to see exactly how the vaccine uh, did contribute. But there was no question that it was a highly successful implementation of vaccine in the deep field, a vaccine that requires to be frozen at minus 60 to minus 80 until it's used. Uh, I think we demonstrated that it is possible to deliver a, a, a targeted ring vaccination campaign in the most complex of situations. So in that sense, uh, it was really good to demonstrate that. However, in the long run, uh, we need to have that vaccine available for all future outbreaks. And we also need vaccines that could be used for more longer-term protection, particularly, particularly in, in health workers. So uh, a significant advance in the deployment of vaccine technology, yes, uh, but we're not there yet in terms of having a complete solution for uh, Ebola virus disease uh, in Africa. Yeah, I'd like to add a little bit about the community access because I think that as we've learned in all Ebola outbreaks, the most important response is one that comes from the community. The community is participating in the response, in the contact tracing, 
in finding people who need to, in this case, be vaccinated, but also people who need to be put under surveillance, fever surveillance especially, and monitored for illness. So if the vaccine has provided greater access to communities, which is clear it has, it's been an asset in that respect as well, as Mike pointed out. And Mike also talked about thinking in the long term for an Ebola vaccine. And what we have now is a first-generation Ebola vaccine, which has complicated logistics. But fortunately, pharmaceutical companies have been willing to prepare it, and hopefully they will continue now to produce it and to provide it if necessary. But thinking in the long term, um, what's needed really is a vaccine which has a long-lasting immunity, which provides immunity to the four circulating Ebola strains in Africa, and which could be used in advance for protecting health workers and primary responders such as uh, Red Cross volunteers, because this is how Ebola outbreaks occur. When they get to a hospital, when people with infection get to a hospital, health workers become infected themselves, spread it into the community, and it becomes an outbreak. It's very difficult to diagnose Ebola firsthand at the first signs. So it's logical that people take it for malaria or something else, but by so doing, they become infected and then it spreads into an epidemic. So if you can protect these people who are unsuspecting of Ebola, you've really stopped the potential for outbreaks to occur and you have what, what I would call primary prevention of Ebola outbreaks. With regards to the importance of community, community outreach, certainly, I mean, reporting during the outbreak this time suggested that DRC communities showed much greater confidence in the public authorities responding to Ebola than those certainly in West Africa, where, as you say, problems with community outreach, cultural awareness and stigma around the virus hindered the response. Why was that in in DRC? Was that because they had previous outbreaks? So over the years, you know, those problems have been sort of addressed in a kind of ongoing way. Yeah, no, I, I do think that uh, I mean, Cogba's experienced uh, a previous outbreak. So certainly uh, the government uh, and its scientific institutions have more confidence uh, in, in, in responding. And I think that confidence comes across the communities. The, there isn't a panic in government. There isn't a panic in the scientific institutions. And, and that passes through to communities. Uh, the, co- the community in Ecuador province itself had never experienced an Ebola outbreak, but clearly they had knowledge of Ebola maybe to a, to a greater extent than communities would have had in West Africa, for sure. Um, I also think the initial community engagement was very swift and very strong, and we had anthropologists embedded in our teams uh, and had, had very quickly adapted the standard messages for Ebola and, and, and protection using, uh, anth- you know, using anthropologists to adapt the message based on local community feedback. So that ability to shape and, 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 and have a very bespoke approach to the community attitudes, uh, I think, was very helpful in this case. And I, I think we've just all learned, especially in West Africa, that you leave the community out of the equation at your peril. Uh, and the community must be front and center in the response to any epidemic. It doesn't matter which epidemic it is, but in particular in Ebola epidemics where transmission within communities is a major factor in disease spread. And and Pam, uh, Mike and I were speaking earlier about the future, and certainly what we'd all like to see is the capacity within a country to be able to deal with an outbreak itself and for the international community to not respond but to facilitate the response. So that eventually we have countries like DRC responding 
for themselves with support from regional institutions, such as the regional office of WHO or the regional uh, Africa CDC or, or other groups that can provide support within Africa so that the international community can act as facilitator and not responder. Just a couple more questions. I just wondered if this outbreak had disseminated more widely and so finding the hotspots and the chains of transmission and the, the conventional approach obviously is, is using the contact tracing, what would have happened if, if that was the case, if there was more widespread transmission? There's always been this question, you know, if the disease gets out, can contain it by other means or use uh, security cordons or cordon sanitaire? Quite frankly, in the context of a country like Congo, that is absolutely impossible and not only impossible but highly counterproductive in terms of shutting down an economy i think we have to remember in many many countries including uh, western countries uh, our economies now depend on the free movement of goods and people and services uh, and we can do more damage by shutting down economies than shutting down disease transmission so we really have to strike a balance between measures that are effective in containing the spread of a disease and measures that are ineffective but likely to cause more damage to the economy or reputation of a country. So in that case, if the disease in Congo had escalated and gone to more numbers, we would have done the same things, but we would have had to do them at a higher scale and at a higher level of efficiency. It still comes back to the, as David said previously, it's identification of cases, surveillance of contacts, isolation, effective support of care, and now the addition of vaccination of cases of contacts and contacts of contacts. In that particular situation, if we'd had a rapid es escalation, uh, I think the vaccine would have been much more pivotal in, in containing the disease. But again, that remains to be seen. So sometimes when something gets worse, you have to do the same things, but do them at a much higher level of efficiency and a much higher level of scale. In West Africa, initially, there was this uh, um, concern that contact tracing would not be possible because it was in urban areas. Yet, in the smallpox eradication program, the only way that you could stop smallpox, even in major areas like Calcutta, which is a huge population, was to do contact tracing and get those contacts out of circulation if you could so that they didn't spread the disease. So, as Mike has said, contact tracing is really um, a basis of outbreak response, and it must be escalated and must be done even more vigorously if an outbreak becomes a larger outbreak. It shouldn't be ignored, as unfortunately it was very early in the outbreak in West Africa. Despite sort of there are, you know, the treatment guidelines and use of experimental treatments, the death rate among Ebola-infected people during this outbreak was similar to that in past outbreaks. Um, is... There, I mean, how much money or resources or in terms are being put into the sort of intensive care capacity in places such as West Africa and the DRC? I think you'll find on, in the data that the, the outcomes for patients were actually quite good. If you look at Ebola uh, Zaire in terms of its uh, case vitality, I think in this case uh, it's very hard to just looking at the epi data, but if you look, at it's about 50%. In, in, in effect, that, that's, that's a quite good outcome from supportive care in the case of uh, uh, Ebola virus. Uh, but you, however, you are correct. I mean, 
there certainly is, uh, in general, you've got weak health systems in many African countries. Certainly in the case of Congo, it's a very weak health system. When we talk about intensive care in the context of a country like Congo, I think the first thing we need to look at is that many, many primary health care facilities don't have adequate drugs. They don't have running water. They don't even have the basics. Uh, so when we talk about providing higher levels of intensive care, um, I think it's it's very hard to have that discussion until we talk about the basic levels of uh, care that a health system should be providing as a minimum. And Congo is a long, long way away from there. I mean, we only have to look now at the outbreaks of cholera in the country, outbreaks of measles, or outbreaks of uh, circulating vaccine-derived polio virus. Um, Congo is a, a country with a high degree of biodiversity. It's got a lot of internal migration. It's got a lot of fragility. Um, there are many, many, many uh, excellent Congolese physicians and public health physicians, nurses. There, are, there is capacity in Congo. There is the possibility of doing more, but it is a fragile country. It needs a lot of external assistance to be able to deliver um, a safer and better healthcare system, uh, a better public health system, and that should be done not only because that's the humanitarian and decent thing to do. That should be done because right now, in terms of global health security, uh, Congo is a potential source of, of, of high-threat pathogens that could spread, and uh, therefore we have both a, a compassionate and humanitarian reason for supporting Congo, but we also have a very, very strong security reason for supporting Congo in developing a stronger health system and, as you said, stronger ways of... Uh, reducing case fatality in this case and providing better intensive care to victims. Pam, I'd just add to that what Mike is talking about, health security is very important because health security is really like a chameleon. It depends on what the background is. And in, in a place like DRC, health security means resilient health systems that can take care of people when they're sick so that they have a chance of survival and also so that they don't collapse and childhood diseases increase because there's no way to treat them. So health security, um, what we need to do is see this broadened, this agenda broadened, not only to include what everyone fears is cross-border events when disease spreads internationally, but also resilience in health systems and strengthening country systems so that there's an individual health security as well as that collective health security. And we can only do this by making sure that WHO and others link the two, as Mike has just done, making sure that it's understood that health security doesn't just include stop it at the borders, it includes take care of the people who are sick. Thanks very much, Mike, David, for joining us today. I'm bringing this podcast now to a close. Lancet listeners, thanks to you too.